Welcome to the Fitness FAQs podcast, where we use calisthenics to gain bodyweight strength, build muscle to look like a bodybuilder, and unlock the mobility to move freely. If you were to describe succinctly what your overall training philosophy is with Alpha Destiny, what would you say it is? I would say that it's about being a generally strong, jacked badass that excels at (laughs) most things, whether that be weight training and calisthenics related. There's nothing you can't do. And at the same time, there's a big emphasis on health because it's all we have. And you don't want to do those. You want to be those jack guys that run out of breath going up a flight of stairs or have horrific blood work. And so I'm not a fan of dirty bulking, although I have practiced it in the past. Uh, I believe in sustainable training and setting a high standard for yourself, particularly in the big three for you know, for the barbell lifts, squat, bench, press, deadlift, but it also extends to other exercises like the overhead press, barbell row, weighted pull-up, weighted dip, even weighted push-ups if you have an adequate setup. So it's not just about the fundamental compounds, it's the variations that those entail and how you raise them with the correct accessories. So my general philosophy is get as strong as you possibly can be and maximize your natural frame train for as long as it takes it might be 10 to 20 years maybe even longer but you never give up you always move forward and you always try to set new goals and something else we talked before about contentment it's okay to be happy with some aspects but i believe you should always strive to achieve greatness in another field and that's why i'm able to do uh, a variety of different feats of strength on my uh, channel because I never gave myself a label. I'm a powerlifter. I'm a calisthenics only, only athlete. I'm just me. And I choose to get strong, whatever appeals to me at any given moment. And it's never to impress others, though I do try to inspire. And a major component of what you just said is the enjoyment aspect. I think a lot of people will see what's trending or what's popular and gravitate towards that, possibly because of the community aspect or a host of other factors. But regardless, you need to decide what is most enjoyable for you because that will be the sustainable approach. Yes. Uh, Without the enjoyment, you're doomed to fail because at some point you realize this is not for me and it'll result in two things. Either you quit completely and lose all those gains or you're just going to keep grinding it out until you get an injury or the programming itself becomes half fast and you just drag in to go to the gym. And now you're in this loop where nothing is really getting done, but you're still miserable every time you show up to train. Yeah, exactly. What would you say are the hallmarks of a sustainable program? You have to pay attention to overuse injuries. Many people are looking for the fastest results possible. And so they run these extremely aggressive programs. Let's say small of being a classic example. <laughs> as effective as it is, you will put some weight on your squat. How many times can you repeat that program before you get beat down? And within the system itself, are you going to be able to run it through to the end? How are you going to feel halfway through? And so I like to take a moderate approach to getting gains where you're still making really good strength progress, but you don't give yourself a chance to plateau because you're just enjoying the process. At the end of the day, many people experience stalls because they're trying to force progression. 
But sometimes progression just happens automatically. When all the factors have been properly addressed, you're hitting the right weaknesses, using the proper compound movements, the frequency is on point, you're not exceeding your maximum recoverable volume. Everything is dialed in. You can come in every workout going through the motions, but there's little improvements here and there. That's when you got sustainability. And most importantly, in my opinion, you have to rotate the variations. Too many guys are following minimalist programs that's just squat, bench, press, deadlift. They don't do anything else. And to me, that's a one-way ticket to Snap City because there's certain muscle groups that might be lagging by comparison. And if you neglect those, I mean, sure, we can look at the big picture, but the details matter as well. And um, a lot of the issues is just repetitive joint stress, using the same strength curves all the time. And that's also, in a calisthenics context, why I like ring so much, because it gives you the freedom of movement to manipulate the way you're going through the exercises. And there's so many ways you can attach your rings so that you get variety. And so... Um, yeah, a great example of that is, say, you're doing bar pull-ups, then you go to ring pull-ups, or you're doing bar bodyweight rows, then you go to ring bodyweight rows, because this addresses the fundamental of what you just said. You're still training those gross movement patterns. Exactly. Uh, is variation, which is not going to beat up your body. Yep. And it's specific. So the carryover is one-to-one, -one, but it's that slight little nuance that makes your body feel fresh, but at the same time, psychologically fresh. Because the key is to not get burnt out in this. How are you going to train for the next 20 years if you're always doing the same stuff? Some people can handle it. In my opinion, most can. There's a certain degree of workout ADHD. And that's why a lot of these special <laughs> exercises are so popular because people are searching for something new. You can tell them, okay, just do a, a barbell curl or a ring curl and you're fine. Who's going to want to do that for 10 years straight? You could, but I think... Variety is key in this respect. Now, the question that the listeners are probably wondering is, I appreciate that, but how often should I do it? Because you just said people never change, but then you also have people that constantly change. What would be a guideline in terms of when to introduce variation into programming? There's um, three ways you can look at this. The first is in reference to the max effort method. So, if you're doing a one rep max every single week, then it's necessary to rotate the variation. You can't repeat it every single time. So if I'm going to do a regular weighted pull-up week one, week two has to be a chin-up or a ring pull-up of some type. I will never repeat the same variation if it's in a 100% one, a all-out grinder where you have zero reps left, even if a guy put a gun to your head. That cannot be repeated on a frequent basis or you will get injured. The second is in reference to your volume work. And for that, a good way to approach it is with three-week waves. This essentially keeps the same movement in. And some guys would consider that to be extremely short-term. So I think it works, like um, just running a classic wave system. Or if you want to creep it up uh, three to 12 weeks, that's about as as long as I would milk it for some accessories can be four to six weeks, like your little, um, isolation movements. Um, but besides numbers, I think the most simplified answer would be switch it out when the exercise stops working or you're starting to get nagging pains. 
So if golfer's elbow is coming in from you always doing the same pull-up variation, try using the neutral grip. Um, if you're trying to, get, if you're starting to get some pec strains from deficit weighted push-ups, maybe do an incline push-up. Stuff like that. You have to listen to your body and um, prevent from prevent plateaus from arising in the first place. How would we go about determining our maximum recoverable volume? So the total amount of work that we can do in a session, in a week and a training cycle, what types of things are you looking for that determine that MRV? Well, luckily, Daniel, there's a lot of uh, research that's come out <laughs> over these last few years. So we can use that as a guideline to better structure our own program. And that's the beauty of exercise science. So if we base it off the data, 10 to 20 sets a week per body part appears to be optimal. And the right volume for most people is going to be somewhere in the middle of that, which will entirely be individualized and experience-based because the stronger you get, maybe you'll have to use a little bit less volume because the absolute load is so high that you feel the extra effects on your recovery. So someone who's doing three sets of 10 with 315 on the flat bench, that's not the same as a guy doing two plates. So 10 to 20 sets a week. In my experience, around 15 to 17 is really all you need. When you go beyond that point, that's when the fatigue could start to become disproportional compared to the stimulus. And you have to ask, even if the gains are a little bit better, by how much is the question? 5%, 10 tops. But if that comes at a cost of having extreme difficulties recovering from session to session, why go through that? If it's going to require a deload and make the program less sustainable in the long run. So again, it also goes back to sustainability. Sometimes you could use the highest amount of volume possible, but should you go there? Many people, probably not. And you know what? I don't do it because I want to lift heavy year round. I want to keep my volume moderately high year round. And if I creep it up to a point where I got to sleep 12 hours a night and be in a massive surplus and constantly rotate my movements because overuse is kicking in left and right, then there's no point. So you can say 20 sets a week would be the highest amount, but I'm not going to recommend that for most. Maybe try, actually, Lyle McDonald says around 12 sets a week. And some people go even below that, eight, you know, and then you have the high intensity crowd that's just one all out set to maximum failure. I'm not going to suggest that, but just to say you can lower your volume and make your training a bit more intense. I appreciate the simplicity of that guideline because that's what is being perpetuated by most professionals in the space. And for a good reason, because as you pointed out, as you get more advanced, it's just so much more fatiguing per set that you actually do. And what tends to happen is if people want to exceed that 20 sets per muscle group, intensity gets compromised. And absolutely. then we're dealing with a concept called junk volume, essentially, aren't we? Yeah. Could you explain that to the people? Yeah, junk volume is exactly as the name implies. You're doing extra volume for nothing. If, if anything, it impedes the hypertrophic response because now the fatigue is disproportionately higher. And at the same time, 
those sets are far from intense. And what do we know by looking at the research? The closer you get to zero reps in reserve, the better the gains will be. Now, that does not mean train to failure. In fact, I recommend keeping a rep or two in the tank, sometimes even three or four. But just to say, 25 sets of body part, those aren't quality sets. The percentage of your one or max is probably going to be compromised. Not to say you can't build muscle below percentages because that's been proven to be effective, but you're not going to go anywhere close to failure. And you're just going to be in the gym, spending extra time, fatiguing yourself when you could have gotten better results, cutting the workout literally in half and just straining and focusing on fundamental progressive overload. Sometimes more is not more, (laughs) if that makes sense. We see that in all respects. Another good example would be nutrition. Like you have a very minor to modest calorie deficit will serve a similar overall result to a massive deficit, but the massive deficit, like the going to failure, tons of sets, it's just overkill, as you just said. Yeah, you, you can't recover from it. And even if, you, even if you are, the gains aren't better. When you exceed your maximum recoverable volume, that's it. It's just fatiguing you for literally nothing. So don't do it. And I think most people, the average person, underestimates how difficult training with, say, one to three reps in reserve actually is. I think people think they're going to failure, but they're they're not actually going to volitional muscular failure where you literally can't complete the full range of motion. Yeah. You ever see someone do that on a leg press? In real life, it's almost impossible to see. (laughs) It's uh, And even in calisthenics, you'll see some uh, very high rep workouts and the guy will claim to go to failure. But then 10 seconds later, he's able to do 10 more pushups. How is that possible? Well, because... It was just the burn and the psychological pain associated with that. You didn't actually go all out. Today's sponsor for the show is Fitness FAQs. Use the coupon code PODCAST10 to save 10% at checkout when shopping on fitnessfaqs.com. Enjoy the discount and let's get back to the conversation. What variables when you are looking at your training program do you actually track to measure improvement? First of all, I track my one rep max PRs on all the exercises that give me carryover. So if we're talking about the bench press, that's going to be my floor press, my incline barbell bench press, my Larson press, dead bench, three second pause bench, bench with bands, you know, every variation you could think of. I want all that documented this way. When I go back to it, say six weeks later, I can break that PR by a small amount, five pounds per se. And by doing that on all these little lifts, I know that my general strength is going up. So I never want to be in the dark about those numbers that I walk in randomly every few months. And I don't even remember what I previously hit. It's important that you keep track of some of these top singles, because at the same time, you can use that as a guideline for percentages. So if I have Because let's say you have a a 350 regular bench and you're going to base 70% off that for your volume work. Okay, that's fantastic. You got it dialed in for that movement. But what about when you rotate the variation to something else like a Swiss bar bench? Without the reference of a top single for that exercise, your percentages would be out of whack. So it might lead to inaccurate programming. 
in this context. Uh, and for me, I'm a percentage guy. So it's important that you have all those references so that everything can be as tight as possible. This way you're not spending a few weeks having to recalibrate certain things, which can negatively impact the reps in reserve. You know, sometimes people overshoot or undershoot besides the top singles. I also have rep PRs, your classics though. So singles, well, I talked about singles, triples and fives, as well as some top sets. When I got my 165 pound weighted pull up, I was doing chin ups with 95 pounds for 14 repetitions. That was an important metric for me because I knew if I was able to surpass that, that my one or max of 165 pounds would be higher. So it's not just about the heavy reps, it's the volume PRs as well. Therefore, it's all synergistic. You keep track of the exercise variety in addition to some of those top sets that are higher rep based. And that's uh, really about all that I track. And of course, when you film your workouts, what, which I would highly recommend people do, even if you're not an influencer, it keeps you accountable. And you can always look back when you scroll down your Instagram page and you see the records because some of us really do have bad memory. And uh, oftentimes you can look back <laughs> a year and see that you haven't made any gains at all. So that's a scary thought, which is why if you're constantly filming, it keeps you in check. The combination of qualitative and quantitative measures are great. So by filming, you can actually get more of a reference for the actual movement pattern in terms of speed, tempo, pauses, all that stuff. Yep. The more intangible factors, because you could have someone say doing a 315 bench and you can have someone doing a 315 bench with a pause. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like a completely different world. Exactly, Daniel. Not all reps are created equally. So on paper, you see 315. How does the form look like? How many seconds did it take to complete the rep? What was the pause like? Did you lose tightness? I know in my case, I used to be completely imbalanced. One side would come up way quicker than the other. And I did that for years. I only realized it was a problem until I started filming. I was like, what? I've been doing this? Impossible. It, it must be because my camera wasn't leveled. No. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the you're camera, the right? issue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? So I, super key, especially in the modern age. Yeah. And it's the most honest way of assessing your training because in our own minds, we, we think we're absolute animals, which we should, but it's always about having that true representation of our form quality. And I think that that makes you set your own standards, which is arguably the most important thing. Absolutely. And it's, it's why uh, strength coaches will ask to see form videos from their athletes. It's not enough just to get the, uh, the Excel spreadsheet back. <laughs> they want to see, okay, how's it looking like? To switch gears, Alex, and talk about maintenance. So sometimes in life, we might choose to go through a period of wanting to essentially maintain what we're at. Maybe it's a busy period in our life. Maybe we're going on a holiday. Um, what would you say would be the best way to determine the minimum effective dose for training and mitigating muscle and strength loss? Congratulations for most people being natural, because that in itself is a massive maintenance factor. I'm talking about a permanent checkpoint that's very difficult to undo. Muscle memory is, a, is extremely powerful. And even if you're lazy for months at a time, you get back into working out a few months in, you'll almost be at peak performance, just to say. And that's not over-exaggeration. 
Many people have documented this over the years. So irrespective of the training factor, you fall off. All you got to do is get back into things and that'll bring you right back where you left off. So that's the excellent news in all this. But if we're not going to completely be lazy, which you shouldn't, but I, I get that sometimes life throws you some curveballs. Don't shoot for additional PRs. Be content and use a much lower volume approach. So let's say someone is doing three compound presses in a session. Drop it down to two or even one. The minimum is usually going to be far lower than you even realize to the point where you're not even doing much accessories at all. Almost like it's a peaking program without the intensity factor being there. And a good way to do it is by keeping your reps in reserve on the slightly higher side. So don't go to absolute failure on every single set. You can do, let's say, three sets of 10 on one compound movement and leave three reps in reserve. This way, you're not really straining yourself to the max. But at the same time, the goal of progressive overload is not present. So even if you're able to repeat that every single session, you're just chilling. You can really, you can get away with half the volume you're currently using. So we talked about the maximum recoverable volume and usually optimal training is somewhere in the middle. Try the middle of the middle. And that's going to be your maintenance volume right there. I like two things with what you said. The first being that psychological awareness that if you've been training for a few years and worst case scenario, you lose a little bit of muscle, you lose a little bit of strength, you will bounce back a lot quicker than someone who's trying to acquire it for the first time. People knowing that and hearing it from an expert will just help give them just that peace of mind that everything they've done in the past wasn't a complete waste. So I really like that, first of all, and just the approach of just doing a little bit less, but still keeping the intensity sufficient to stimulate, but not progress. And as people can hear from the theme of our conversation so far, it's just making that decision for yourself is just absolutely massive. It's not beating yourself up because you have to maintain or even regress very slightly, accepting that, knowing that it's temporary and that when you want to progress in the future, you once again make that decision and soldier on. Or you could just have a really defeatist attitude and just think (laughs) the world's out to get you, but you got to take responsibility. You always have to take responsibility. How much direct core and abs exercise do you do? Because if you go on social media, you could see a just plethora of different exercise options and functional training this and yeah, buy my my abs course. What's what's your thoughts on that topic? Well, I think uh, doing the rep ab work is important for injury prevention, especially if you're going to be doing things like squats and deadlifts. You want to have your weighted crunches up or even doing exercises where you're in a static position like uh, zercher holds or emphasizing compounds that are more taxing on the core, like front squats, uh, SSB squats, et cetera. So that stuff is awesome. But in terms of a huge emphasis on the abs, I have to be honest in saying there's not much these days. In fact, during my shredded transformation, and you can see how my abs look like at the very end, they were popping out hardcore guess what i didn't train my abs at all (laughs) but the low body fat is what made them appear so even though you can argue i had more muscle at a heavier state and i actually trained my abs harder they look better 
when I was single digit, just because that's how it works. The quote, abs are made in the kitchen is true. Now, obviously you have to thicken them up a little bit with some direct work, but if you have a base level of strength, I mean, you can kind of be lazy with them and they're still going to be popping. So my, my general advice would be to do weighted crunches. Don't just waste your time doing eight minute ab workouts with a bunch of random variations, all that trendy nonsense. No, just treat them like any other muscle group, progressive overload. You're doing a, a one plate on your crunches, try to get up to two, or uh, you're doing standing cable crunches with half the stack, max it out and use proper form. Focus on that spinal flexion. Oh yeah. It's probably less problematic than uh, we once thought. And even things like the leg raises, which uh, I know Daniel, uh, you're big on fantastic. Uh, especially you can even do those weighted ankle weights with what you said about the weighted flexion for the people that aren't aware there was a stigma maybe a few years ago regarding yeah. you shouldn't load the spine to flexion but that study was on a on a pig spine which was i believe it was a, a dead pig spine too so it's mm. not even a living structure <laughs> so you couldn't compare it and people blew that out of proportion but with yeah you, yeah with what you said regarding abs i think that that's what I've heard from most people. If you do too much stuff, it just takes away from the big movements. If you think you've got to do more ab exercise afterwards, you're not going to give as much effort into the stuff that's actually going to transform your physique and your strength. Uh, when people do like four different ab exercises in a single session, eh, I find that insane because you can probably just do one and be perfectly fine and even use a lower frequency approach if you so choose to. Because guys will literally go to gym to do cardio and abs. Okay, you do you, but is that necessary? Probably not. You're probably wasting a lot of time. I would rather you do neck training instead of hit endless sets of crunches because that's going to make a much more noticeable effect on your physique. You, you know, your neck can get a lot wider, whereas the abs, like you said, minimal hypertrophy will occur after a certain point. Could you elaborate on that topic of neck training, Alex? Because that's something that is very very niche but you've become somewhat of a popular figure in the in the youtube sphere for for the old neck training mate so talk to me about it yeah so it's interesting because neck training used to be a thing that many people practiced back in the day there were a lot of old-time strongmen that even performed feats of strength where they suspended objects out of their mouth so they would clench onto stuff and they would do neck extensions and it was a common measurement that even if you look at some of the old school calculators, I think there's the Greco formula and the one by Steve Reeves. So they were highly aware that the neck played a role in aesthetics. And these days, I don't know, I guess it came out of favor, but you know, I've been talking about it. I made my first video in I think 2014 on how to get a bulldog neck. And I wasn't practicing what I preached at the time, <laughs> but I still discussed it because I didn't really see much information on it. Uh, but after some time, I, I really got into it and I took my little pencil neck from 13 and a half, 14 and a half inches, right up to 18, 19. And that was with a lot of direct work. But along that journey, I also learned that the neck, the neck shrinks fast if you stop training it. So like any other muscle, you need to isolate it for optimal gains. And we're not all blessed in this, in this regard. Like some people, they'll get a big neck just from doing deadlifts. That's not everybody and and usually in, in those instances you have to get elite performance to really maximize your hypertrophy and actually if you look at the calisthenics community a lot of them uh, a lot of the guys have really wide thick backs but tiny necks 
So I think it's important to do your, your basic movements like uh, flexion, extension. Then the side work is basically the same function as deflection, you know? So really you can get away with two exercises if you want. And it doesn't have to take a lot of time either. 20 minutes at the end of your workout or on an off day, just get yourself a neck harness. I recommend uh, the neck flex. And yes, I am sponsored by them, but it is the best one on the market because <laughs> here's a funny thing that happened to me years ago. I bought a cheap neck harness and it broke off my head in the middle of the set. And uh, that was very scary. And I decided right then and there, never again, exclusively invest in quality. So yeah, <laughs> you don't want to mess around with that. I am not surprised that you freaked out for the neck because without getting too complex, the yeah. nerve innovation through that area, um, yeah, you would not want a spinal cord injury. So, geez, man, that's very scary. It was scary. And also, you hear some exercises like uh, the wrestler bridge, which I used to promote in the past. These days, I don't really do anymore. Um, that too might have a higher injury risk. So the neck is... It's, it's important not to ego lift. And that's why for me, I pretty much only do higher reps of say uh, 20 to 25. I would, to be honest, I would not go below 10. I think that's playing with fire and your form needs to be kept in check. You know, some guys are, are jerking weights and they look like they're spasming. No, your thoughts on neck training are very logical. It would respond just like any other muscle group, but correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like, the neck would be somewhat similar to the calf in the sense that you probably want to do more volume, et cetera. But the underlying idea with the neck training is it grows like every other muscle, take it through a full range of motion, get that eccentric phase, as you rightfully said. When we talk about gaining muscle with the higher reps, it, in fact, that's factoring in reps in reserve, right? So we're getting close to failure. With the neck, it's really easy to hit failure, even when you're burning to the max. So there is no psychological pain barrier, barrier that will stop you. So if I tell you to do one set of 20 to failure, everybody could do that. You'll know when you hit that point and you'll see that you're starting to transfer the load to your abs or you're starting to be more upright on the neck extension. Like you will see your form degrade extremely fast and you'll know when it's your neck that actually failed versus you trying to jerk the way up. So it's really easy to do. And like you can, you can gain muscle with any rep range, but I find the higher reps just make more sense. Also considering it's a small range of motion. So you might as well, it's going to take the same amount of time as doing like 10 reps of a, a curl, just to say. Right. And just in closing, just a, a thicker neck. There's just something about that, which just looks very masculine, doesn't it? It just, it just, yeah. it just promotes that fertility of the male. Look at this guy. He's got that thick neck. He must, he must be able to handle some stuff. It's that's the power look. Some dudes they only have thick necks, but then you look down and they're skinny, and you're like, "What?" I thought this guy was a, a bodybuilder or something, but it gives that illusion. So, man, you better be training it. Now, Alex, for someone that has been training for many years, as you have, I would assume that you might have had some aches, pains, or even injuries over the years. If you have, what lessons did you learn from those injuries? Well, I'll first mention that the times where I was the most snapped up is interestingly when i was a teenager so even though on paper you have uh you're more resilient you know you can get away with doing dumb stuff that wasn't the case for me and that's because you're more prone to ego lifting making a lot of programming mistakes 
And thank God these days, there's much more information out here. Back then, YouTube fitness was a dark place. It was seriously lacking uh, for strength, for proper strength training. And we made a lot of mistakes, myself included. So I, I hurt my shoulder doing muscle ups years back. That happened to me by twisting my body. You know, you know, when guys try to like <laughs> jerk their way up. Oh, you took uh, the chicken wing one arm at a that, time. Yeah, that's, like, that's, that's it. The dreaded um, sin. Shame on you. Shame on me. And that's, and that too, a lot of people, they're, they're doing this kipping form. They don't know how to do a control muscle up, right? Uh, but that could be a progression. So I'm not going to talk trash. Anyway, uh, my shoulder, it was like twice. I remember in the gym too, I was demonstrating to a guy how not to do an exercise. <laughs> and that actually got me snapped up. So I, I wasn't happy about that. And then another time I hurt my lower back ego lifting on good mornings, but like bad because I was going over four plates and I probably didn't have the strength capacity to do two plates. So it was, that's just extreme. And I paid the price for that. I had to develop an, a, an entirely new protocol just to remedy that. But besides uh, the shoulder and the lower back and, oh, and some uh, golfers elbow pain because of, uh, excessive overuse in some of the calisthenics movements and even my hypermobility when someone's getting injured left and right it's one of two things either their program is off in some type of way or they're rushing progression it goes back to what we talked about before regarding stability these days i put injury prevention at the top of my list above all else i'm not looking for the fastest gains i don't care how long it takes uh for my muscles to grow or even to set new prs if i'm feeling nagging pains i need to address that instantly and these days that rarely ever happens because I I'm putting out the fire before it even starts. You don't have to get injured. There's no reason for you to get injured. This is 2022. There's excellent channels like fitness FAQs that show you the ropes, proper form, managing your exercise selection. And all you have to do is not lift with your ego and you're going to be perfectly fine. So when I was in my best years, quote unquote, I was the most hurt. But now that I'm getting older, I'm only getting better. I couldn't have said that better myself, Alex. I believe that the people that have the best physiques and are the strongest relative to their potential, their genetics, are simply the ones who are consistent, who play the long game, don't get injured. And just if you look at it over the long, long term, we're not talking months, we're talking years and even decades, mm -hmm. the ones that get injured less have less aches and pains, have less psychological burnout. They're the ones that reach their peak. So I, I really like that advice you said. I think people should rewind that and listen to it again because highly valuable. Thank you, man. And that's exactly what we see with the old school bodybuilders. If you notice, they all peaked later in life. None of them had their best physique at 25 years old. It was late 30s, maybe early to mid 40s. They listened to their bodies and understood that this was a long-term pursuit. There's no shortcuts. You're not going on drugs for a few months. You're not doing a cycle, bro. You're in this for life. And if you want to do that, if you want to be lifting or just training in general hard for years and years and years, then you can't get snapped up because doing that will just set you back, sometimes even permanently, if you really ruin yourself or you'll never reclaim your best version. And when I look at guys like Matt Wenning, for example, I believe he's in his early 40s now, who's still 
kicking ass with powerlifting, maxing out, being able to bench press well over 500 pounds. When I see stuff like that, it, it goes, it brings, it makes me realize that programming is the answer. And don't get it twisted. Like we absolutely love what we do in terms of training, have endless passion for it, but it's just drawing that line and almost treating yourself how you'd like to treat others in the respect. If you were teaching someone how to train, what principles would you tell another person? Apply that to yourself because I think most of us get caught up in the enthusiasm, more is better, just keep adding on, keep training harder and harder. But it's just taking that bird's eye view of your situation and just thinking, I'll progress eventually. If not today, if not next week, it's it's going to happen. Yeah, and, and that's why we can't be overly concerned about one workout being bad. You have a, a bad day. That's going to happen every once in a while. And when you get that, it makes you, you should reflect on why that happened in the first place or just not be attached to it, whatever. It's one session. If, if you're training, and that's another thing too, right? You can't skip workouts. You have to follow the schedule no matter what. I don't care if it's Christmas, you got to train. Sorry, bro. And just if I look at my own training, I don't think I've ever taken more than maximum, like no exaggeration, three weeks off in like a decade. It doesn't happen when you're a serious lifter. Even if you go more than two weeks, you're going to start to go crazy. You want to, you want to work out. So that habit, like when we say this is long-term, like Daniel and I are not joking with you guys. I feel like I'm speaking to myself right now because it's <laughs> obviously very similar. It's, yeah, even those days when, say, you're on a on a holiday or something, you can find a way to get in your session. You're not going to set the world on fire, but you're still building, you're, you're maintaining that pattern. And just, I think most importantly, Alex, it's the, it's the habit and the routine. When people fall out of that, it's almost like they've got to will themselves to get they back gotta in. Re- exactly, yeah. And that's why a lot of channels right now are making videos on coming back from a layoff because people literally stopped training completely. And, you know, now it's January. The gyms are going to be packed for a little bit until they're not because that momentum has been lost for so long. But if you've always been at this, you never stop moving forward, even with those bad sessions. Then it's simply a matter of discipline and following the structure. It's like when you were a child and you had to go to elementary school at this given time frame, and you had these classes, and this is what it was. You didn't have a say. You have to think of yourself not as a prisoner of the gym, but be married to the process that you're just not going to stop no matter what. And with calisthenics, that makes it even easier because you're literally your own body weight. And if we're talking about exercises like pull-ups, where can you not do them? You can even do it on your freaking balcony if you want to get extreme. And then gymnastic rings, you can hang that up on a tree. And most people haven't mastered all the progressions. So when you realize that there's always a way, there always is. Exactly your example with the anywhere, anytime aspect of calisthenics. That's what I really maximized, especially when I was studying. Like I was living at a dorm and, you know, sometimes it'd be raining outside or whatever. I couldn't put my rings up. So I'd just go to the staircase in the dorm, put the rings <laughs> over the top and just, you know, move, move aside when someone else was coming downstairs. But yeah, you can, you can always get it done. If you, if you are passionate and clear about what you want to do, then mm-hmm. it doesn't even feel like it's, it's a chore. You want to get to that space. On the subject of calisthenics, just look at what prisoners are doing. So many creative options to get results with bodyweight training. They, they, they'll use the edge of uh, certain bars and that might require them even doing partials 
So it's, it's extreme compensation, uh, compensation, using people for weights as well, uh, filling up garbage bags with water, like, oh, uh, tricep extensions on your bed, <laughs> lots of stuff like that. And burpees too are so good that I, I used to do a lot of boxing workouts at home with the Bob dummy. I'm thinking of getting rid of it just because I find the burpee workouts are even better. And they give you carryover to running, in my experience. If you can do a 45-minute burpee workout, jogging for an hour is nothing. You almost find it too easy. So with conditioning stuff especially, you're doing a bunch of circuit training, your heart rate's going to be elevated, and you'll be building that um, resiliency, that mental toughness to just grind through pain. The reality of progress throughout the course of someone's training history. So if someone's a beginner, if someone's an intermediate, if someone's advanced, what can we expect at large in terms of how quickly we progress? I would first say that the novice stage, so your first one to 15 months of training, or let's say one to two years to simplify it, is relatively quick progress, in my opinion. If you're following a properly written program, say written by a professional who has all the fundamentals covered, let's say with calisthenics, you're using the easiest progressions and you slowly work your way up. So if there's 10 progressions, you start at one and you don't try to jump into five right off the bat. You take your time. After one or two years, you'll easily gain 60% of your total natural size to me, where anyone can tell you lift weights. Your shirts are snug. You're filling in those pants. You have a respectable athletic looking physique. Intermediate that's when things start to slow down a bit and that journey might be another three years. So from year two to five, that's when like, you're still making really good progress, but it's slower than the novice phase and whatever you might've gained initially might be half of that. So let's say someone put on 20 pounds of muscle. Maybe you're only getting 10 now, then it gets down to five. And then when you hit the advanced stage, you'd be lucky. You, you would do anything to gain five pounds of muscle. You might be getting two to three pounds a year tops. And some would argue even less than that if we're talking about actual lean muscle tissue. This is where most people quit, but it's actually exciting what you can do when you go beyond year five. So between getting your first decade in, I think that's where most of the fitness gains will be uh, accomplished, at least 90%. And it's slow at that point but you're always making progress. Just you have to be realistic about what numbers are going to be achieved. Just for reference, I got a three plate weighted pull up in 2017. My next PR, which was four plates, was only hit in 2021. So that's how long it took. One plate and four years. That's what you guys can expect. But guess what? It's still a freaking plate. And if I do it again for another five years, I might be at five plates. Progress never stops. It's just such a small rate that many people describe it as a limit. And that's why this concept of a natural limit, I'm starting to question if it even exists at all. Because if I were to approach that mindset years back, I was going to settle for a 315 bench, a uh, 165 pound weighted pull up, four plates on the way to dip, even though I got five already. We create our own mental limitations. And that all has to do with the fact that natural training is slow after a certain point. You're, you're not going to put on 50 pounds of muscle naturally. It's rewarding is what it is. 
because you're putting in you're, you're putting in the work for decades at a time and you peak later in life as i talked about earlier with you so the reality is it's really really slow and you're probably not going to see significant physique changes from year to year just like all the naturals on this platform watch uh assuming they're both assuming the camera quality hasn't changed too much and the recording experience is somewhat similar go watch a natural in 2022 and compare his physique in say 2017 or something you won't see like a massive difference maybe the guy put one inch on his arms tops but if you put actual pictures side by side it's minimal but there's still gains and that's why like even though some people would find this to be discouraging and might want to hop on peds know that you're still getting somewhere and that's where just going with the flow being stoic that's the answer you have to be because if you're not you're just going to get really frustrated with the rate of progress i'm glad you raised that point about genetic limits because it's something that we need to be clear about i feel that there's this comparison effect which skews <clears throat> people's perception of genetic limits the approach that you're adopting is the same that i do and it's a very healthy approach in my opinion it's the relative genetic potential what i mean by this is you compare yourself when you first started the progress that you've made over time and seeing how you've improved and knowing that you can keep progressing even beyond your existing point but the issue is when people do i guess absolute genetic potential comparisons looking at someone else that is right. may, maybe a similar height to them etc that's when i believe it gets unhealthy because there's so many variables with their internal structure possibly their external circumstances that's where maybe this genetic conversation could be a bit of a demotivating factor for people it could be especially if you believe you have similar genetics to someone who obviously doesn't have your profile visually you might believe that's the case but there's other factors that actually um renaissance periodization made a good video on what the genetic traits are like he quantified exactly what that is there's a tremendous amount of nuance in this discussion so much that there's literally no point comparing yourself to another man It drives people crazy because that's all they think about do i have bad genetics good average where do i lie how about this it doesn't freaking matter because either way you're still going to train are you now going to quit because you discovered your leverages aren't favorable guess what even if they aren't the best you can still get to such a level that someone who's more blessed than you oftentimes genetic freaks get lazy with certain stuff because they have it so easy whereas the underdog is always hungry you're always searching for more and in the end if you always adopt that mindset then you will succeed and in my case i don't have the best arm genetics and you're looking at someone who bench press four plates aside with only 16 and a half inch arms there are people who are doing a plate less than that with 17 18 inch arms so what when we bring it to the fact that it's all individualized progress then it doesn't freaking matter at all education that's how you overcome your genetics learning about what real naturals are doing following the evidence when applicable maybe hire a coach if you still need one and just staying on course as long as you do that i guarantee you train for 10 20 years you're not going to have a bad physique 
no doubt. It really comes down to almost placeboing yourself in a positive way, not delusional, but a internal locus of control. You can do it. You can progress. Thinking that, oh, I can't reach this amount of muscle or this strength on particular movement, you're already admitting defeat to yourself. It's about just taking the mindset that you can can do it, even if the rate of progress can be slow, like we discussed. Having that thought process is going to be much more conducive than, oh, I can't because of my genetics, <laughs> because the, this indicator said I'm this fat-free mass or something. It's You almost need to have a, a healthy delusion with what you can uh, Yeah. I was just going to say that. You almost have to delude yourself into thinking you have great genetics. Might as well, you know, because what's the alternative? You're going to put yourself down? Nah, man. Just set higher standards for yourself. With full body training, Alex, this is a topic that people know has merit, but maybe aren't convinced on the benefits of this style of training. When, when would you say that this is beneficial for people discussing the pros and maybe some of the cons? It's applicable for any stage in one's training career, whether you're a beginner or elite trainee doesn't matter because at the end of the day, all splits work and program adherence is number one. You just have to ask, does it fit into your schedule and are you able to optimize it in a way that's most conducive to hitting your goals? That's it. Back in the day, I was a huge proponent of full body training because this is how all the big naturals did it. And I was following their guidelines and it just so happened that it met all the criteria of successful programs in the sense that with full body, you're likely going to focus on the fundamental compounds, not overdo your junk volume and your frequency is going to be decent. So let's say two to three times a week per body part. And you're just progressively getting stronger and that, at that, which actually counts. And it's a very time efficient way of training because you can be in the gym, not many times at all, but, physiologically you're acquiring the muscle protein synthesis if you're able to handle the full body workouts which i must be honest are difficult great go for it you, you won't be living in the gym and that's a huge advantage to many people who have busy lives they're, they're not professional influencers so one of my favorite splits is full body twice a week monday thursday or tuesday friday some people might say how is that even possible well What's a push-pull legs or an upper-lower? You're still hitting twice a week muscle protein synthesis per body part. I'm doing it too with a full body twice a week. Difference is my workout's going to be twice as long, you know? And I might have to incorporate things like supersets and giant sets to speed things up. And because you're doing the lower body and upper combined, it's very demanding. You need to have a certain level of work capacity. And some people are just burnt out halfway through. You know, they did bench press, squats, barbell rows, deadlifts, overhead press, plus the accessories. It's a lot to do. But assuming you can do it, well, then you're not going to be living in the gym. They're just the times you are there, it's going to be brutal. So really, it's another way of organizing your training. Nothing magical, but certainly a great way to work out. Great explanation. It comes back to if you are going to do full body training, being selective and it needs to be something that you can sustain and also enjoy. But knowing that, that if your life is busy and you have to have, say, two workouts a week, 
it might be something worth considering for a training phase. Now, Alex, we understand that we need to be consistent, but how do we stop ourselves from program hopping? You need to follow people who are legit. There's a lot of influencers who don't know what they're talking about, and they probably look that way because they have great genetics and take a bunch of drugs. And so when they give advice to their audience, it's absolute garbage, including the programs that they offer for free or sell. And many gullible novices will follow these programs and get absolutely nowhere. So they hop on to the next one. But who's popular? Another fake natty who's peddling the same nonsense. And this is where the cycle continues. But if you follow someone like Daniel, you're not going to run into these problems. You run his uh, ring program and you're going to get that next level. You're not going to program hop, guaranteed. You follow people with credentials who are actually here to help you, who are most likely natural, not because being natural is objectively superior, but that you know what it takes without external assistance. Even if you discover something else halfway through, let's say it's a three-month program and uh, you're week six or eight, don't stop no matter what. Even if you absolutely hate it, you despise it. Okay, we can talk about training enjoyment as a long-term process, but you made a decision to run this. Now you're going to follow through. The only exception is if you're getting snapped up or the program is so suboptimal that it just doesn't make sense to keep running it. But assuming it's sound and it has a, a list of testimonials and it's, it's not some gimmicky nonsense, like this is proper, there's no reason why you should change it, then don't. And also the realization that progress will be slow is key because sometimes you don't even have any plateaus. You're just really impatient. And I've received some questions over the years like, uh, hey, my overhead press increased 30 pounds in three months. How do I get faster gains in that, Alex? Should I switch to this program? And I'm like, 30 pounds in three months? Bro, I'm not even going to get that in a year. Do you realize how lucky you are? Embrace that. You highlighted a few things there, which are great takeaways, Alex. It's especially for people who are intermediate to advanced you really would be doing yourself a disservice by constantly changing things because as you rightfully said, the body takes time to adapt to the stimulus at that point. So that's number one. Number two is enjoyment might wane as you get into say week six, eight, 10 of doing the same thing. But I'd say from personal experience and other people who have progressed to more advanced levels, the satisfaction comes when you patiently stick that extra week or two and you see that progress because that in and of itself, even though the routine is the same still and you're not program hopping, that is the most gratifying thing. One, because you made progress and two, because you were patient because most people wouldn't be patient enough to actually see that small improvement, right. which is huge. You're absolutely right, Daniel. Sometimes you're literally right there, but then yeah. you turn in the wrong direction. It was right. You just had to grab it. Just if you were to state that I program for a few more weeks, the progress would have been realized. But then you switch to a completely different system. And now you're, in, you're no longer peaked or anywhere close to what you were supposed to reach. The adaptation was right about to kick in. And, you know, that leads to another discussion like, is progressive overload the driver of hypertrophy or is it evidence of hypertrophy? Oh. You know? And oh. if, it's, if it's simply evidence, then that further proves that all we have to do is stick to the program. If you trust it, if it was properly written, by the end of it, you should reap those rewards.
Yeah, for sure. And it sounds too simple to be true, but I mean, <laughs> it does, right? The, the <laughs> mechanical tension on the muscle, if it's the same movement pattern, is still stimulating growth eventually. So the best thing, the best indicator that we have, especially as naturals, is progress, strength improvement. That's how you yeah. can ascertain if you're getting changes, even if they're minuscule to your physique over time. That is the best indicator, both psychologically and a long-term approach instead of just trying to catch a pump or train to failure, which we discussed oh. has, has flaws. When would you say is the best time to deload if you had a recommendation in terms of time training and also signs and symptoms that a deload might be justified? You either force the deload, even if you're not feeling any symptoms whatsoever. This way, it's literally impossible to run into problems. Or you take a more intuitive approach and deal load when your body starts to feel a little bit run down. If we're basing it off general recommendations, I would say every four to six weeks on a very aggressive program could be good. Even if there's no symptoms whatsoever, I mean, you're always in check, right? And in my experience, when you max out very often, you need more deal loads. Like when I was doing max effort days twice a week, which I don't recommend. So let's say on a Monday, you're doing a one or max way to pull up. And then on Thursday, you're doing a one or max way to chin up. If you're going to do that twice a week, which is excessive, then you're going to have to deload probably every fourth week, to be honest. So the more intense you are, the more psychotic the system is. Again, going back to that discussion of aggressive progress, the more deloads you got to take. So in theory, if you're really like taking your time, you shouldn't require that many deloads in a year. But if you're trying to maximize every facet of your system, the greatest volume, the greatest intensity, then that comes with a price of having to take a few steps back in order to keep moving forward. So either you listen to your body or you have a set structure that, okay, I don't care what happens. I'm going to deload this week and discussion. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense because I think people get confused with just the amount of options there are in terms of how to do them, when to take them, et cetera. But when people do deload, if they decide one of the two approaches, What's your preferred method? Do you cut volume or do you cut intensity? Do you cut frequency? What's your thoughts? I cut both or I do absolutely nothing, which is not even considered a deal owner. <laughs> but sometimes life will throw that at you. So you go on vacation for a week. You might do a few light sets of push-ups and bodyweight pull-ups, but you're not doing, uh, say, uh, planche push-ups. So the intensity of the movement gets scaled back a bit. Just drop your percentage considerably. If you're normally doing 75% of your one or max, Try going as low as 45%. Keep your intensity very low. Leave a ton of reps in the tank. Just try to get a small maintenance stimulation effect in there. You're really not pushing yourself hard out. You're just trying to maintain the movement pattern, even though you're not going to lose it in a week. But it's, it's mini stimulation. That's it. And you don't have to overcomplicate how you're going to do it. Sometimes in an intuitive approach to this or just common sense, this is the way to go. Exactly. But for the people that take the more passive approach of deloading by not training, obviously don't turn full sloth mode, get out <laughs> there, do some steps, get some sunlight, chilled, active recovery, not just completely sedentary. You said it best, active recovery. And along that, I would say nutrition cannot be compromised. So if you're going to take that week off, eat exactly the same way you normally would if you're training for elite performance. 
Now, in terms of exercise form, you seem like someone that wants to use sound technique, repeatable, reliable form, which is good to set standards. What would you say are the signs universally of bad, poor technique, or even dangerous form? First of all, many form issues that we see can be attributed to muscular weaknesses. Sometimes the person is trying to use the best form possible, but it's just not going to happen unless they use a very low percentage of their one rep max. When you get past a certain point, this is where some muscles will just break down because they're not strong enough for that movement pattern. The skill is there, but the brute strength factor isn't. So let's say you're always getting lower back pain on conventional deadlifts. You start to round like a banana. Well, your glutes are probably really weak and some would argue the spinal rectus as well. So how do you fix your form on that? Well, a good way is not even to do the exercise. You'll be switching to another variation that directly targets those specific muscles that are causing form breakdown. Besides like just generalized technique work with um, a lower RPE, the absolute best way of solving form issues, attacking the individualized areas, because it's all synchronized in that way. If your bar speed slows down, whenever you're doing a press halfway through, you probably have weak triceps. Maybe you're not tight enough at the bottom of your bench press. You're just bouncing reps. So switching over to a pause bench that allows you to really hold that weak position is going to correct um, the pec weakness. You know, yeah, that's a great point you raised because by reducing the loads, you're actually in a position to be able to use correct form because if you're training at such high percentage of one RM, it'll inevitably break down when you're going closer to, to failure. But I really like what you said with just reducing the loads fixes the form itself because you'll slow down at the pause and you'll be sweet full range of motion. It's not what's on the bar. It's about the stimulus. And if I make people do an exercise like a Larson press where you've cut out the leg drive completely, okay, there's 10% less load on the bar. But how is that affecting the prime movers of the press? Everything is in your favor. But now you're getting all that extra technique work. You're learning how to stay tight with the upper back. You're locked in. And the movement carryover is going to be high. So what I'm saying is some exercise variations are still extremely specific i'm talking one-to-one carryover and it feeds into the main lift i wish people applied what you just said we'd have such mutants natural mutants just <laughs> walking around because yeah you want to you want to stimulate the muscles and the nervous system with just enough weight in the target rep range that you want to work with nothing more nothing less and by having those strict exercises where you perhaps adding a pause or, you know, commencing from a dead stop, that gives you literally the best of all worlds. But if people just got away from the trap of absolute lifting, or if I'm not lifting my maximum working weight, I feel inferior. That is not the approach, but your mindset of changing the exercise variation to make it difficult, but not having it so heavy where it cooks you and your form breaks down or your joints get beat up. I wish people applied that and I hope they do after listening. What do you think about cheat reps or it's sometimes referred to as training form? So using momentum, maybe jerking around a bit more than you usually would. I used to do a lot of that stuff with uh, cheat rows and cheat shrugs. And I would say 
if your form looks horrific, the point where you can't even tell what the exercise is, is like you're doing underhand power cleans on curls, for example, <laughs> then you have a problem. You're not, <laughs> you're not, you're just ego lifting straight up. But if it's controlled cheating and it's reasonable, for example, you're getting close to failure and you start to bend your back ever so slightly, or you control the eccentric, which is the main thing I'm going to say in all this, or there's not excessive swinging when you're doing your rows, because that can apply to inverted rows as well. Use your hips to prop yourself up or the range of motion starts, starts to get shorter and shorter. I mean, that's technically still cheat reps, right? So if it's quantifiable and you're not just doing progressive cheating, like progressive overload is taking place, but you're able to spot it then it's okay. But do I think it's necessary? No. Would I recommend it? Sure. <laughs> That's the reason why I asked you the question because I remember following your stuff for multiple years in the back in the earlier days, maybe like four or five years ago, you were just getting after it, man, with those like um, <laughs> bent over rows and stuff. And I think you had a bit of a, a paradigm shift where maybe you went too, too extreme in terms of the, the momentum. Yeah, and, it was. Uh, yeah. It went from... You know what the philosophy was, Daniel? Changing from overloading to just having a better understanding of biomechanics and stimulus to fatigue. I mean, I could use the rack pull above the knee as an example. If I have, if I have to load myself up with 1,000 pounds to get a, the same effect as like being bent forward with 500, 600, why wouldn't, I just, why wouldn't I not just use the harder position? That term that you just said, stimulus to fatigue ratio, for people listening, look that up. That'll change your whole mind on what we've just been talking about. It was one of the biggest game changers uh, of all time for me. Me too, man. Uh, bro, it's insane. Once you understand that, you start to look at every exercise in that context for lower body training, calisthenics, really any goal. And you, and you learn to go for the hardest exercises possible instead of looking for the easier way out. That You, you think you're working harder because it's more weight on the bar, but really you would get a, a better training response with more range of motion so if you're gonna you know there's always this discussion of partials versus full range of motion i would say as a general rule full range is the way to go but if you're gonna lean in a direction of any extreme i'd rather you do extreme range of motion versus extreme partials so a deficit push-up is going to be a lot better than uh, a half rep push-up where you're arching like crazy and you're doing these little uh pump reps you know so that gets you strong going in going in like aggressive positions of course yeah. not getting injured still being reasonable here but like even with pull-ups sternum pull-ups are difficult you do, you do enough pause reps on that even weighted i guarantee it's going to prove your regular uh, chin over the bar position and another example just to give people a takeaway on the stimulus to fatigue ratio for say someone interested in calisthenics but also aesthetics as well the example i'll give is an area that lacks in people who train body weight is the lower back because mm. clearly everything we do is upper back focused. So then you're like, okay, what are my options here? I can do Romanian deadlifts. Okay, that's a good good exercise, full body, targets posterior chain, hits the lower back. But as you rightfully said, we've got to think about stimulus to fatigue ratio. What's an alternative? If my goal is lower back, why don't we try a... 45 degree back extension as an example yeah that takes it through a full range of motion it stimulates the spinal erectors and it's using significantly less load whilst getting tension on the muscles without the global fatigue and that can even be extended to doing 90 degree back extensions which are also very difficult and 
you know, you won't be able to load it very heavily, especially if you put a bar on your back. So it becomes like a good morning, but you're in that 90 degree angle. Yeah, those are tough. Those are extremely challenging, but it's humbling. And that's sometimes what we need. Yeah. yeah. Like stop overly obsessing about the number on the bar. Look at the proximity to failure, the, the intensity factor. If you're doing three sets of 10 and they're very difficult sets, but you only got an empty bar on your back because you're doing a 90 degree back extension, that's a great option. Instead of having to put all these plates on and, and do uh, like a heavier exercise that's still giving you like a similar response in the spinal rectors. Yeah. And that's the real beauty, I'd say, of calisthenics. I'm biased, of course, but <laughs> there's, a, there's a massive stimulus, but relatively low fatigue compared to most bodybuilding, powerlifting, Olympic lifting style movements. That's why right people on. look jacked and people like how. Yeah, you, you feel great. And that's why, you know, you can train at a pretty high frequency with calisthenics and you, you feel fine every single workout. Mm. It, but of course, you still got to pay attention to overuse. What would you say your favorite unconventional lifts or exercises are? Some of the exercises that used to be called unconventional are now pretty mainstream, which is fantastic. I think the more we get away from bias, the better the community will be. Back then, there was a lot of pressure to conform to doing certain exercises with specific rules or standardization. Like uh, if you didn't do conventional deadlifts, you were a pussy. For example, if you did, if you use straps on any of the exercises, you just had a weak grip, you were compensating, like people would nitpick every little detail. If you were doing a, I don't know, a Jefferson deadlift, it's because you're trying to mask your sumo deadlift strength. You got to put the bar between your legs because that's the only thing you can do. Like all these weird things I used to hear, right? I'm glad that we're past that in 2022, but probably my favorite unconventional lift would be the high handle trap bar deadlift absolutely love it i much prefer it over the low handle version and in general it's probably my favorite deadlift variation of all time everything about that exercise feels right and then for the upper body weighted deficit push-ups in particular on the plow boxes the way you demonstrate it is really good the only issue with that though is um, you need high enough boxes when using enough weight right so i found that with a backpack those are freaking money but though it might affect your scapula movement a little bit, which is not the best. Um, so maybe regardless, right? Weighted deficit push-ups, And then for back training, well, the trap bar deadlift kind of uh, accomplishes that, but the weighted inverted rows are pretty unconventional as well. You don't see guys doing that. So I would say that the calisthenics moves, weighted calisthenics in general, I feel like it's not as popular. You I know? agree. I'm really like, trying to push that as well, Alex, because I feel that it's just... It's fun. It's sustainable. You can progressively overload for so much time. Your body weight doesn't affect it as much as the pure calisthenic movements. Now you're talking my language. Why do you like it? <laughs> well, I just love it, man. And uh, it's like you say, it's measurable. You can actually make tangible progress on it. So I'm doing, if I'm doing a weighted push-up, instead of doing these prisoner workouts of hitting hundreds or thousands of reps where you, you really do have to compensate, I mean, it works, but you got to do so much work. Instead of doing that, why not train like the bodybuilders? Follow time-proven protocols, optimal volume, periodization, et cetera, in the same freaking movement patterns, but it's just calisthenics base. I, I would rather do, you know, deficit, weighted deficit push-ups and weighted dips than um, doing some mach machine chest presses, for example, because I'm going to get the athletic carryover, 
but from a hypertrophy standpoint, get all the same benefits. There's no, there's no reason to believe why this would not be extremely effective. In fact, there is zero reason to believe why you couldn't hit your genetic limit with these weighted calisthenics movements alone. I've got a theory as to why it's probably not so popular because calisthenics at large tends to be done communally outdoors at parks, right? So that's where it was mainstay, where it started. And now it's only ever so slightly going into the gyms. What does weighted calisthenics require? Equipment. Like you said, if you're doing exactly. weighted push-ups, you need three sets of boxes or a box and a dip bar. So it's a matter of time. I think people will come across to the fact that they can have the best of all worlds in the respect of looking strong, being strong, moving their body, and all while using a, a weighted calisthenics approach that applies, as you said, the principles of strength training, not this circuit style stuff that is 100% just- right. Yeah. The, the principles have to be there. As long as you're adhering to that, it's going to work. Like you just have to trust the process. And I suppose a weighted calisthenics, like there's the sport of street lifting, right? Which is weighted pull-ups and weighted dips. Why is it those two? Well, for one, they have a high loading capacity and they're fairly simple to judge, but they're also simple to execute. All you need is a weight belt and you hang off a pull-up bar, you do your rep, you hold the top, chin over, you can see it and the dip, you know, when your arm hits parallel and you just need parallel dip bars, you're good and you're suspended. Like that's easy to do. But with some exercises, you got to be a little bit more creative and there's nothing wrong with the creativity. People just have to be receptive to it and give it a chance. Understand that it's sound, like everything makes sense about this. Now you just have to experiment with it. And I think over time too, as we talk more about this, there's going to (laughs) be more methods of loading certain muscles. And I think with gymnastic rings, that's already been figured out for the most part. All the positions have been identified, but with the weighted calisthenics, there's a lot more room for improvement. And that's fun. That's exciting. Oh, for sure. And I think people will become more educated on when to position certain exercises in their session. So just continuing with what you said, Alex, with your weighted dip, your weighted pull up, they're always going to be your compound movement at the start of your session because it's safe to load them up over time. But then you've got your movements like your, your push up and your, your row, your body weight row. You can still overload those, but it's not as safe to do so at lower rep ranges, which is why you'd put them after as more of a a supplementary or accessory movement. Fatigue yourself in a safer rep range of say eight plus. Now in the body weight culture, it seems like isolation tends to be demonized as something for bodybuilders and being calisthenics enthusiasts, people tend to be purists and at large stray from it. What are the benefits of isolation and what isolation movements would you recommend? First of all, I think you've done an excellent job at showcasing that this minimalist mentality of only doing the compounds is is limiting your potential. Why not isolate it? This is what every bodybuilder on planet Earth has done and will continue to do until the end of time. Because if you have a lagging muscle, you attack it head on. It's what it is. Okay. And with calisthenics, if people aren't motivated enough with the aesthetic factor, like if you do tricep extensions on rings or pelican curls, if they're not motivated by the fact, that's going to increase the size of your arms more than just doing push-ups, dips, and chins. Then I don't to tell them other than the fact that, okay, you don't care about looks, there's still performance. Those little exercises will give you carryover. Therefore, it's always worth it. You correct. We talked about weaknesses before, right? 
Well, those smaller little muscles can hold you back. If you have lockout issues on your weighted chin-ups, work on your biceps with a closed chain uh, exercise that has overloading potential. And you will clearly see it gets easier at the top. This is how I was able to improve my one-arm pull-ups even more. It's how I got a lot better at the halfway point with my chins, especially for things like uh, gymnastic training with the RTO position. You got to work those positions, right? But once you have the resiliency and then you can start to improve with the different progressions, man, you're going to get so much more buff than if you just stuck to, you know, the basic moves. And that's what we see in elite calisthenics practitioners who do it all. They not only excel at generalized, like high rep body weight training, but they're able to do the skills. Uh, they isolate. They're typically good at rings. And overall, there's um, a blend of many performance attributes. So it's great for aesthetics and um, strength. Does lifting weights translate to calisthenics? And does calisthenics translate to lifting weights? I would say that calisthenics translates way better to weights than the other way around. Well, first of all, there's a lot of evidence of people who do prisoner style workouts that when they go to the gym on day one, they can already put up intermediate numbers on certain movements. So if I'm doing deficit handstand pushups for three sets of 15 with a pause and they're freaking they're, those those are hard. Don't tell me you're going to be weak at the overhead press. It's not happening. If you can rep out planche pushups, you should be able to have a great bench press automatically. And we've seen this with people who don't lift weights at all. Day one, they come in, they're benching anywhere between 225 and 315. Or they can get to advanced numbers with relatively little peaking or much specialized training at all. And a good example of that is an OG little beast M. The first time he ever bench pressed, he got 350 pounds, I believe. Uh, Austin Dunham got like 325, 335. Now he's obviously mixed in some weights in there too, but I'm just saying if 80% of your training is calisthenics, the carryover is still going to be brutally high. If you're repping out weighted pull-ups, you can max out the lap pull-down. First attempt ever. You walk into any gym, you're going to be able to do it. It's just how it is. But I can't say the same is true and the other way around. Obviously, you can raise your strength potential by having bigger muscles. You, you're going to have an easier time when you get into calisthenics because you're not a detrained noob, right? The work capacity is there. The muscles there. You just got to get hyper-specific, learn the movement patterns, and you're still gonna you're gonna have a much higher potential than someone who never did that stuff. Absolutely, but that's gonna give you the same degrees of carryover. I don't believe that to be the case, nor have I seen this over the years. There's a lot of great bench pressers out there who cannot come in and hit very impressive weighted dips on their first attempt. I haven't heard any really thorough explanations as to why this is the case, but that appears to be the consensus at large. Like you look at a gymnast and then you put him into any resistance training method they're going to have an easier time doing that than a power lifter or a bodybuilder coming into the bodyweight world. It appears to be, like you said earlier, Alex, something to do with the close connect chain nature of the movement, possibly enhanced coordination and synergy of the different joints. Yeah. But the, the good thing is, obviously most people listening to this are calisthenics based. If they want to have a, training variation or off-season of some description, substitute your calisthenic movements for weighted alternatives. And it gives you the opportunity for a different stimulus. You're targeting the prime movers. 
perhaps increasing the hypertrophy potential. And then you can translate that back into calisthenics. For people that want to combine both weights and calisthenics in the same training session, what was your experience on doing that? Because that's a bit complicated for people. So I, I do this year round, have been for years, and I just view it as some exercises are effective. So you might as well just do them. For example, the way to pull up is always in my routine. Uh, I, don't, I don't see the point of doing much lap pull downs if I'm strong enough to do heavy weighted pull ups and all the grips of those entail. So it's a vertical movement pattern. That's going to be the primary choice every single time. <laughs> so that's an easy, everybody should be doing that. There's no reason, like if you're strong enough, why not progressively overload on your way to pull ups, weighted dips. You can do that right after your bench press. In fact, what if you don't have dumbbells at your home gym? Why not introduce weighted calisthenics to supplement for that? Sometimes we're looking for more equipment when you had the exercise already available. You just have to figure out a way of loading tissues. This can be extended to the cambered bar bench press, which is like this weird bent bar that gives you extra range of motion. Instead of buying one of those, which is going to take up space and cost you like $500, do the method that Daniel shows, weighted deficit push-ups. You're getting the exact same muscular training effect, but now you're going to get stronger at calisthenics as well. Or like if you're looking for a finisher for your triceps, you can just do body weight extensions in a deep position and fail on those instead of just gravitating towards grabbing some lighter dumbbells. So basically, when you understand that some exercises are just amazing, they're badass, just do them. It's, it's like when people rotate general gym exercises, they'll have their staples. Well, calisthenics should be in your staple routines as well. It shouldn't just be going from this machine to that machine or this specialty bar to that one or switching from barbells to dumbbells. No, calisthenics needs to be in that discussion if you ask me. And it also minimizes overuse. The more we talked earlier about exercise variety, well, weighted calisthenics is one of the best ways of including that. Like I can't think of anything better, to be honest. Muscle soreness. Is this something that we need for a successful workout? And can we still work out when we're sore? You don't need muscle soreness and you can still work out when you're sore. I think the old school belief that you need to have crazy doms in order to get results is outdated. The evidence has proven this to be the case. But um, what I'll say beyond that is DOMS is usually an indicator that you did too many slow eccentrics in your program. It could be a sign that you're lacking frequency. So maybe you're only training your muscle group once a week when it should actually be two. Or it could be that you've introduced uh, a newer exercise. And just off that different training stimulus, you are now sore. If those things stay constant over the next coming months, like the soreness should go away. It should be very minimal. So usually this is, you're in a detrained state and you did something that was actually overdone in your program. Some would actually argue that it's worse to be sore. I would have answered that question the exact same way with every single point that you just said. It's, that, it's, you know. <laughs> it's very true. Yeah. But the, the takeaway for people listening is you should be starting a new program with probably less intensity to start with because then you won't run into excessive soreness because that could impact your ability to have a productive session to come yeah and, and in terms of uh, training while you're sore that could obviously be done in fact it could be a great way of getting rid of the soreness because your muscle is just lacking frequency 
So get some get some blood flow in there. Take some some freaking bands and do some curls with that. And your your bicep will feel better the next day instead of just laying around doing nothing. That was a good response, man. I'm impressed. You've been doing your rating over the years. You've, uh, that's good, man. That's very <laughs> well, good. I appreciate that, man. We're always trying to learn more, right? Yeah. We, you know, there's certain goals that we might maintain, but our hunger for knowledge, nah, we're never settling. Because <laughs> it's not only yeah. about us. We got to uplift our community. People tend to be concerned with muscle imbalance. Is this something that you worry about? Is this something that you actively try and fix? I don't really concern myself with this that much, though I do acknowledge it's a real problem in some contexts. But most of the time, people don't have an imbalance. They just think they do. Or it's so minimal that you might as well not call it an imbalance. Like I've received thousands of pictures over the years of people's arms and they're like yo my left arm is way smaller than my right and i'm looking at it and i i I don't see the difference but these these people seem to be very bothered by that so body dysmorphia plays a role in this but assuming you actually do have imbalances first ask how did you get to that point i know my case when i was doing too many one-arm pull-ups on the left side i started to get cocky with that and so i overdid the volume to the point where I literally created a Latin balance. My left side became wider than the right because uh, I was like doing double the volume and putting in the required effort because you're good at something, right? So when you notice that, instead of instead of acknowledging that position and just reinforcing it further, take a step back and say, no, I'm not going to allow this to get worse. And usually, in most cases, that has to do with not using proper technique on your lighter loads. You're trying to overload and compensate through any means possible to get that weight up. So it's what we talked about before with correcting weaknesses. Weakness correction is also imbalance correction. They go hand in hand in this discussion. And one of the common things I hear is you want to switch to unilateral movements, right? In my opinion, that's only valid if you're exclusively training the other side. Because what you'll find with these exercises is that the same bad form will be used. The easiest example would be the dumbbell bench press. If you have a tendency of raising one arm quicker than the other, that's not really going to fix it because you're still going to do that. You're just going to, it's just going to be with two different implements. The problem is the upper back tightness and the overall form of your pressing. So what you should do is exclusively train one side of the dumbbell press instead of having both of them in your hands at the same time, such that the strength matches up over time. And then secondarily would be dropping the load on your bilateral movements where you can visibly see the imbalance and just reinforcing the proper movement pattern, which you reinforce already over time. That dysfunction was created by you constantly doing that same repetitive motion. I want to ask you a few final rapid fire questions, Alex, just to get your thoughts, whatever comes to mind straight away. I want to hear your response. So what advice would you give to young Alex starting training fresh clean slate? The first thing I would point out is that these mistakes made me who I am today. So although I would try to tell my younger self not to do those things, And hopefully he would listen. The truth is, I'm grateful that it happened. 
because I can speak from a place of experience and give that back to community. And this isn't something that I read. It's real tacit knowledge. And sometimes you grow through your hardest moments, your failures, your suffering, your worst nightmare is oftentimes your greatest blessing in disguise. And you learn to really appreciate that later in life. And that's what I've found to be universally true. The only thing I would say is life will humble you, Alex. <laughs> you got you got to keep yourself in check. Drop your darn ego. You're, you're young. You do a lot of stupid things. You don't think about the consequences to your actions. You think you'll get away with it because of your age. Life has a fun way of biting back at you. You know, things will come around. If you were acting in improper ways, you'll pay the price eventually. Some would call that karma. I think it's just reaping what you sow. You know, you can lean that in any direction, whether it's positive or negative, those actions add up over time. So I would just say to be a little bit more careful and think about the consequences of what you do. What is a common fitness myth that you believe is incorrect? Bands and chains. So the usage of accommodating resistance doesn't work for raw lifters. That's one of the main things that got me to an elite bench press, using that exclusively for max effort lifts for actual months at a time, documenting everything on my Instagram page. All the personal records are there. The workout videos, everything was explained. I stayed true to my guns for years, despite people in the comment section saying this doesn't work. I showed them that it was. And some of the people who talk trash ended up apologizing for that, acknowledging that, yeah, in the right context, there is some validity to this. You know, some people do have legitimate lockout issues on their presses and it's not just because they're slow off the chest or need to be tighter you know or their pecs are lagging sometimes you do need to modify the strength curve a little bit and at the same time modifying the strength curve is good for preventing overuse injuries so even if it didn't have carryover which it does because it's the ability to strain that we're training the fact that we're you know manipulating the joint leverages that's absolutely huge. So why would you not want that in the context of a long-term training program? The idea that conjugate doesn't work for raw lifters, which I have proved is effective on two scales, my weight training personal records and weighted calisthenics. Lastly, Alex, what would you say are the recommended resources you would like to provide the listeners? I mean, they're, they're already following your channel, so I'm not going to go there. For exercise science, I'd recommend science and practice of strength training, super training, the basic essentials of strength and conditioning textbook. Even if you don't plan on getting certified in that, it's still a good read. Special strength training, a manual for all coaches, science and power and sport. The West Side Barbell Book of Methods, which if you haven't read, you're just paraphrasing what someone else told you about it. You really should do yourself a favor and read it. And then uh, my book, Naturally Enhanced, cover some of the things we talked about today in a more simplified way. And then for podcasts, this one, the Westside uh, Barbell podcast is great if you want to learn more about the conjugate system. Some other channels I could recommend would be Natural Hypertrophy, Jeffrey Verity Schofield, basically people who are natural and are preaching the correct message. I don't believe in mediocrity. Winning strength, if you want to learn what it takes to stay in this game, for decades at a time and still lift really heavy. Ivan Jerk, we talked about him before, the guy who does uh, squats on a frequent basis. Massive Iron, Steve Shaw, a veteran of the Iron game. Sean Nalawani, again, he's been on YouTube for since the, since the start. 
never stopped and his channel finally took off this year you know on kiri elite fitness scott herman fitness tau physique if you want to learn about body weight training uh, with rings and stuff like that perfect alex we'll keep it there for today i really appreciate the time chatting with you your wisdom over the years that you've gained both in the trenches as well as learning from people and packaging in a way which is easy to understand for people that are listening and watching your stuff where can people find out more about you? First of all, thank you very much, Daniel. It's always a great honor to chat with you and just seeing your evolution over the years and being able to chat about training one-on-one is fantastic. And I hope that people learn from this discussion from both of our ends. Now, uh, if people want to learn more about me, they can do so on the Alpha Destiny YouTube channel or my Instagram, Howard Alpha, and all the other resources will be easily accessible from there. Fantastic. Take care, man. Fitnessfaqs.com to master calisthenics and become a bodyweight pro.